Welcome to A Break in the Action, where we take a break from the business of our days to focus on outdoor pursuits and the traditional sporting lifestyle. Join us for discussion and interviews on vintage and modern break action shotguns, sporting literature, outdoor leisure, and reviews of best-in-class gear, accessories, and destinations. So pour yourself a drink. Sit back, relax, and let's take a break in the action. A Break in the Action is proud to be sponsored by Dewberry of Ireland, B&P Shot Shells, Negrini Cases, and Coal Fine Guns and Gunsmithing. And now, here's your host, shotgun collector, wing shooter, and sporting clays enthusiast, Ryan Dowdy. Hosting A Break in the Action, there is one question that I get asked more often than any other. Listeners want help or advice buying used shotguns. This is a question that I can absolutely relate to because, as you've heard me say before, I didn't grow up hunting and shooting. When I first discovered shotguns, everything was new to me. I had many of the same questions that I'm being asked now. Is is it smart to buy a shotgun online? Is it safe to buy from an individual seller? What should I look for in determining a used shotgun's condition? And what red flags should I be aware of? These are just a few of the general questions that are worth considering when you're buying a new bird gun for next season, or upgrading your sporting clays gun. Joining me today are two familiar voices, Greg Elliott and Phil Borgeli. Both have been on the podcast before, and each of them spends a ton of time investigating, using, and writing about shotguns, both new and pre-owned. I want to stress first, though, that in addition to the tips that you're going to hear today, nothing can take the place of educating yourself and being a wary buyer. We live in a day and age where you can learn about virtually anything online. Models of shotguns, new and old, are going to have information written about them and probably even have content on YouTube about them. Sadly, you need to also remember that there are dishonest sellers out there. Finding out about a shotgun model's strengths, weaknesses, known issues, before even getting too deep in the buying experience is the first tip that I'm going to give you. These shotguns that we love to shoot aren't cheap. And you owe it to yourself to get as much of an education as you can before you pull the figurative trigger to buy one. And never forget that you're looking to buy a device that is designed to reliably and safely detonate two explosions by your face. Price and budget always need to be considerations, but solely hunting for the lowest price may not always be the smartest option. Understanding how to spot defects, damage, and wear that could affect a shotgun's ability to be used safely also falls on your shoulders. I'll go ahead and say it now. If you're serious about buying a particularly shotgun and you have concerns that it can be used safely, get it inspected by a professional before buying it. If your seller isn't willing to help you arrange this, just walk away. Before we bring Greg and Phil into the conversation, I'd like to spend just a few minutes and give a quick hat tip to our sponsors. Negrini's Italian-designed crash-test double-wall bumper technology is the strongest, lightest weight case in the shooting sports and outdoor industry. How light? Up to 65% lighter than most aluminum gun cases. All Negrini cases are TSA-compliant and come with a limited lifetime warranty. 
Luxury finishes are available in 100% Italian leather to complement your beautiful shotgun. With over 40 years of experience making the best quality cases, you can trust that Negrini has you covered. Since 1937, Dewberry of Ireland has been expertly combining rugged, all-weather functionality with timeless style for both men and women. Not only are they home to the Galway boot, the iconic, original, waterproof, breathable, Gore-Tex-lined leather Wellington boot, but they also craft a wide collection of footwear, clothing, and accessories to handle whatever conditions life might throw at you. Check them out at Dewberry.com to discover your perfect fit. Bashkieri and Pelagri is recognized worldwide for its design, production, and distribution of premium shot shell ammunition and components. From its custom powders and plastic wads to its innovative Gordon system cases and loaded ammunition, BNP has a long demonstrated history of providing high quality shot shell products for smoothbore guns for use in competition and in hunting. BNP shot shells, primed to perform. Established in 1985, Coal Fine Guns and Gunsmithing is a family-owned and operated business serving shotgun enthusiasts across the United States and beyond. Known as the Beretta experts and specializing in European shotguns, there is no better place to make your next purchase or access a full menu of shotgun services. Cole has developed a team of shotgun experts, the most complete in the industry and the most extensive service offerings in the industry. For a limited time, Cole is offering special pricing on new DT-11s with either custom stocks or TSK adjustable stocks. Details are available at www.colegun.com. Find out for yourself what the Cole experience is all about. I'm proud to have each of these fine companies supporting a break in the action and what we're doing here. And I hope that you'll investigate whether their products and services are as good a fit for you as they have been for me. Now let's welcome Greg and Phil. Guys, I think this is going to be an interesting talk, and I think it's going to offer a lot of really good information to our listeners. Um, I know that both of you are in and around shotguns a ton and most definitely have been buyers over the years. So I know that you're going to be able to provide some really good points. Um, So let's get started. In preparing a used shotgun buyer's guide, I think that there are really four or five main topics that a potential buyer needs to focus on. The most important thing in my mind is that you need to be buying the seller as much as you're buying the shotgun. Determining how reputable the seller is needs to be your first order of business. Guys, how do you typically vet the seller of a shotgun that you're that you're interested in? I can go first because mine is short. I don't um, I don't buy guns online. Uh, just never got in the in the habit of it. I I tend to buy from brick and mortar stores and and where I can go and look at the gun. And the stores I shop at will have a gunsmith that will look over every gun that comes in, so you know that it's going to be right. And if it's not, they will make it right. Mm-hmm. And that that takes a lot of the anxiety and uh, potential for disaster out of buying used guns yep yep so i would say that i have almost the exact opposite experience based on where i live i've been buying and selling shotguns for over 20 years and probably got familiar with and comfortable with buying online before a lot of people did just simply because my area of the country just didn't have a lot of um, gun shops um, to look over um, quality double barrel shotguns Target and sporting shotguns are a little bit easier to find um, around here, but side-by-sides or field 
over and unders, um, especially higher end doubles, there just really isn't that much of a market for them close to me. Um, Greg, you're in the Northeast, and I know that you'll, you have some epic gun shops pretty close to you. Do you find that you're more of an in-person buyer or an online buyer? <laughs> I almost never buy in person. Never. Um, so almost everything I buy is online, either like through um, Guns International, gun broker or through an auction that I find online. Um, so there are a lot of gun shops. I, mean, I shouldn't say a lot. There's, you know, so there's a handful of gun shops around me. So Robin Hollow is not far from me. Safari Outfitters, Connecticut Shotgun, Kittery Trading Post. It's, you know, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of places where I can go see really nice guns. Um, it's more that uh, I think, I guess I just don't, the stuff I like, um, kind of, I kind of, I guess it just kind of pops up anywhere. Um, and I used to go to gun shops a lot. I used to go to Kitty Trading Post. <laughs> I hate to say this. I used to go to the Kitty Trading Post every day. Um, <laughs> when I was younger, wow. every day I'd go there. Uh, and this was back in the, uh, late nineties and even it was through the nineties, but the period when I used to go every day was in the late nineties. Uh, and that's where I, I saw a lot of stuff and that's back before the thing that the, I guess the biggest thing that happened was that was that was back when you could go to gun shops and there was a place like the Kidder Trading Post, a place like New England Arms, and you could see a lot of stuff. Like yeah. They had an inventory that was rolling. Right. Um, they had stuff coming, you know, people walking in with stuff. And the Internet's changed that so much um, that I find that there is there just there isn't that much of it going on. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with Greg on that. The, the, the pickings at the. The stores where I shop are a lot slimmer than they used to be before everyone started buying online. So right, right, yeah, yeah. Like Cabela's, there, there's a Cabela's near me. It's actually two. I mean, so I could hit, I could hit Kittery Trading Post, New England Arms, and Cabela's all in the same day. And between those three, you could see, you know, some of the finest guns in the world. Well, New England Arms closed, and then the internet kind of wiped out Cabela's. And they still have some stuff, but just different. It's just not what it used to be. Different stuff. Yeah, and um. So my so I've shifted. So I do most places. Most everything I do is pretty much online, um, and like you're saying, I agree with you 100. percent You have to buy the seller as much as the gun. Yep. Yep. So 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 let's speak to that because, like I said, I think that is a critical first step in buying a used shotgun. I think this really applies to the buyer, like Phil, who primarily buys guns in person, and the buyer like Greg and I, who aren't able to put their hands on that gun. Uh, maybe before buying it, your initial interactions with the seller should should definitely be positive, and and I think that they should be informative. If it's a gun that's listed online, your sh- your seller should really go out of his or her way to show you as many quality photos as possible. Um, I know that Guns International allows for fifteen photos with a basic ad, and I think Gun Broker is ten. Um, on a used gun listing, the seller should be maxing out the number of photos um, that they're showing you in that listing. Um, I absolutely see no reason why they wouldn't. Trying, trying to determine the condition of a used shotgun with one or two or three pictures is, is frankly, it's just impossible. Um, 10 or 15 pictures is, is plenty to really begin to tell the story of the condition of that shotgun, looking over the, the metal finishes and the stock. Um, I also think that a reputable seller will actually highlight issues or damage on a used shotgun in the photos, no matter how big or small they are. Um, 
I also want to feel confident that the seller is familiar with this gun and either provides detailed specs or can answer questions and provide um, that level of detail. If, if, if you have to explain what the length of pull is or cast is in the stock, you're probably dealing with a seller that might not have much experience with the shotguns that we're talking about here today. Your seller, whether it's an individual or a shop, should be willing to spend some time with you and answer whatever questions um, you have. You guys, you guys agree with that? Yeah, I agree with that 100. So I, I, I like to see lots of pictures. Um, and more importantly, I, so the other thing I always do, I like to see lots of pictures. And then I will always ask the seller to send me something that I didn't see. Mm-hmm. And I do that because I want to make sure they actually have the gun. Right. Great point. Because if they don't have the, I mean, I don't, it's the internet. I don't know where they got the pictures. Mm. So I'll ask them for something specific and I'd ask, I'll ask them for that picture. And then I'll ask them information that is probably, you know, and then I, I, and then I want the description to have a lot of information. And then I like to ask them, you know, some other, uh, some other question that might be, yeah, yeah. So all just sort of stuff that, like, uh, you know, proof of life. I want to know they have the gun in hand. <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> right, and that and that's a great point. And here's an example that I've come across that isn't necessarily to avoid a scam, but but nonetheless something you should be on the lookout for when individual sellers um, list guns online. It's not uncommon for them to also. Um, drop that off at their local gun shop and try to sell it on consignment. The problem with that is that if that gun is no longer in their possession, they can't speak to you about the exact detail um, or, or about the exact condition um, that that gun is um, today. So shotguns on the rack at a local gun store get picked up and, and potentially mishandled or, or, or dinged up. So getting that proof of life, I think is, is a great, great point. Yeah. And I, and I, so uh, that's a really great point. And I also try to, um, I try to, so I ask a lot of questions and I, I send, I'll send a very deep, I have almost like a form email I send people and it's like, it has all the questions and they're very detailed questions. Mm. And I send, I always send it to them and I want them to respond to my email. Because I'll get guys that say, why don't you give me a call? And I'll say, no, please answer my questions and then we'll call. And the reason I do that is I want to have a document that could, that captures everything. Right. And I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. And, but if you're dealing with something that's expensive, you're, the seller should be, the, the seller should be willing to, to deal with you and answer these questions. Yep. And again, I want a document that says, this is everything they said it was. Cause if the deal, if I get the gun and it's not that way, then I've got the piece of paper and you know, in all of these things, if you're dealing through the mail, the person can always just keep your money mm. and you, you really have no recourse. Yep. And I mean, you can say that you're going to do this and that, but you're not going to get a lawyer cost too much money. Right. The police don't care. The post office doesn't care. No one, no one's coming to, no one's coming to help you. Yep. So, yep. and, and nine out of 10 times these days, the credit card company won't want anything to do with helping you out. If you, if you tell them or if they suspect it was from a, for a gun purchase. Yeah. They're not, your credit card company is not going to help you. No one's going to help you. So, uh, yeah. So you really have to be, you really, so yeah. So I try to do everything to just make sure that I know everything about it. And then the other thing, if someone doesn't go, if someone don't want, doesn't want to answer all my questions, it's just a way to weed out a seller too. Um, I can find out if they're legitimate, if they're, if they're an agreeable person, if they seem like they're going to be a difficult seller, um, because I've done it enough to know that you're not getting your money back. I've been burned. I mean, I've never had anyone just outright, outright not send me a gun, but I've had guns that just weren't what they were told to me what they were. 
and uh there's nothing worse than buying problems yeah so yeah well moving on i think we can all speak um to how we like to determine the condition of a shotgun that we might be interested in um, this is kind of a broad topic of course but but starting off when you're just starting to inspect those photos online or if you have that gun in your hand do you have kind of a mental process that you usually try to work through to to determine for yourself um, an opinion of the condition of that gun? I try to. Um, you know, you want to make sure that the gun is tight, uh, which, and that it is, and I look for rust. I look for signs of refinishing. Yep. Phil, Phil, I'm going to interrupt you uh, really quick. Sorry about that. Yeah. For listeners that may not know what you're talking about when you say you want to make sure the gun is tight or maybe on face, right. that's basically referring to whether the shotgun on its hinge still locks up tight, um, that the barrel's closed tight with, with no rattle against the action face. Um, this is an obvious sign that the gun has been shot quite a bit and potentially may not be safe to shoot. Either way, um, it's important to note that um, condition right off. Sorry for the interruption. Um, what other initial things do you look at? Do you have a checklist that you work through? Specifically, no, I don't. Um, I look the, One thing I've learned the hard way that I didn't used to do is make sure the choke tubes come out if it's a modern gun. Oh, yeah. Uh, because when those get stuck in too tight or rusted in, that is an expensive repair if it can be done. Sometimes it can't. Sometimes you can get the, the tube out or it'll wreck the tube. Sometimes it wrecks the barrel. But, uh, yeah, I, I've learned that one. Um, so it's, it's, it's one extra thing that I, I didn't used to do that I always am very careful to do now. If, if, and sometimes it doesn't matter if it's a, a trap gun with a full choke that's stuck in the barrel. That's, that's a plus because I don't have to worry about it flying out. But <laughs> uh, you know, if it's, right. if it's something else, it's still, still a negotiating point on the price, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. No. And, and I've, I've right. done that too. Yeah. I, I bought a turkey gun that had a choke stuck in it and I took it home and tried to get it out and soaked it and tried to get it out and took it back to the store and everybody there tried to get it out. And then the gunsmith kept it for a week and they said, we can't get it out either. Uh, how about if we knock a bunch of money off the price? And I said, sure. So, um, yes, that's so, but something to, to check with, uh, with modern guns. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure everybody does. Right. Right. Greg, how about you? Do you have a, a method that you work through to get comfortable with the condition of a gun that you're considering buying? Well, so I, so the first thing I always look at is the condition of anything. That's the, the so before I'll even get into the barrels, I, I look at the condition of the gun. Um, and then this is because I, I look at a lot of old stuff. I don't, I don't think Phil is, is as interested in, in the really old stuff as I am. Um, and uh, so I'm always looking at, that's the first thing I want to see. And the reason I'm looking at condition is I'm looking for original condition because if something has been refinished, um, then I start wondering, well, why was it refinished? Was it refinished correctly? What did they do to the gun while they were, while they were refinishing it? Um, and if a gun's... Uh, so that problem is eliminated the more original a gun is. And guns tend to have uh, more value the more original they are. Mm-hmm. Not always, but that's just, you know, they tend to, they tend to. And I like original finish. I just like, I like old finish. I like patina. I like stuff that's worn. Um, so I always look for that first. Like, so I want to see a gun that's largely original. Um, maybe reblued barrels, but once you get into the colored, recolored actions and stuff, I get a little weary. Uh, a little wary, I guess. Um, uh, 
So what what about things like torn up uh, screw heads? Screw heads. Um, yeah, yeah. For me, yeah. yeah, for, yeah. for me, that me that makes me really nervous to see. I know that um, it would take a lot for me personally to go after a screw head at home. Um, and, and honestly, I would never do it carelessly seeing one or seeing torn up screw heads on a gun that I'm looking to buy makes me wonder if there might be other corners cut exactly in this gun's yeah. care or maintenance, uh, that may not be quite as, um, visible. I know that, um, for me, when I can, I always try to give a gun, a simple shake test, um, sure. just holding it by the barrels and giving it a gentle shake. Is it solid? Um, or is there, is there a rattle? There's also a pretty simple test that you can teach yourself to make sure that the rib, especially on older guns, is still solidly soldered sure. to the barrels. Um, things like that I'll typically always do when I can uh, get the gun in hand. I'd say that I buy probably an equal amount of field guns, um, vintage guns, and then competition style or sporting shotguns. So one of the things that I notice a lot on on more of the modern shotguns is when someone takes a shotgun that maybe was designed for field use and has used it for five or six or seven years, shooting a lot of sporting clays with it. Now, your your standard field-grade shotgun wasn't really designed for that volume of shooting, and depending on the manufacturer, it could really show some, um, some significant signs of wearing out um, if it was used that heavily for sporting clays. So that rattle test is something that I do like to just kind of regularly do. How about cracks in the stock, um, the wood? Are, are there absolute red flags when it comes to cracks in the wood, or do you just sort of take that in stride? Greg, you probably have a bit more experience with that um, being more of a used shotgun buyer. Uh, so cracks in the wood and stuff don't bother me too much, depending on where they are, because that's a pretty easy fix, depending on – so if it's – I guess the bigger thing is to find out if it's what it what else it could be. Um so unless it's like cracked through the wrist or something like that, like I was just looking at a gun the other day and the, the front of the forend, there was a little split in the wood, um, at this, the section that comes up against the action. And, uh, unless it was something really bad when you, I, I saw it, it was an exterior photo. I could see it from, unless it was on the interior really bad. That's something that really wouldn't bother me. But I've also seen guns that, uh, I could see that where I could see a split in the hand coming down from their safety. And even though it wasn't all the way through the hand of the stock, that, I mean, it's still something that's not that hard to repair, but uh, that would make, that worries me. It makes me wonder if the gun is cracked before and someone's repaired it. Um, so it depends on where it is. Yeah. So, so where the cracks are dictate your level of concern. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I mean, behind the top tang, behind the safety is, is definitely a high stress point for the wood. Um, Cracks on the forend wood under are under a whole lot less stress um, than those that are kind of immediately behind behind the action. Yeah, I wouldn't worry about that. I wouldn't worry about that failing. Um, whereas if the can of the, if if it's if you're going you know if it breaks through the hand, splits through the hand, and falls apart, you've got to if you can if you can repair it, right. it's going to be expensive. Right. So. How about excessive oil in the headwork of the stock? Um, if you see a gun that's just got blackened wood. In the headwork of the stock, does that does that make you nervous? Yeah, I've seen that. That that's yeah. a mess. Uh, that 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 would be a red flag for me. Yeah, and, you know, cracks. Yeah, yeah, cracks would, you can fix. That, that when the, when the wood starts to get mushy and fall apart, 
There's not a lot you can do. Right, right. And for listeners that may not be familiar, when someone um, cleans and then overly oils and then cleans and overly oils their shotgun and then typically stores them upright in a gun cabinet, all of that excessive oil makes its way down the barrels and, and the action, and it just soaks into it, absorbs into the headwork of the stock. And over time, that can turn the wood kind of spongy and, and definitely affect um, its its strength. It's it's a pretty easy thing to spot if you know what you look or if you know what to look for. Um, are there any other things that uh, to to look for in determining overall condition of a, of a used shotgun for you guys? Uh, no, I mean I I think it's just I always look. So after I looked at the condition, the other thing I want to know, and I think we're going to get with this probably up next is I just want to know the condition of the barrels. Yeah, yeah, so that's the biggest thing for me. I want to know uh, if there's any pinning. Any pits, bulges, or dents? I, I can't. I, the number of times I've written that phrase in an email, I've probably written that <laughs> thousands of times. Yep. So, yep. Are there any pits, bulges, or dents in these barrels? Yeah. So, so, so we all agreed while we were talking um, here before we hit the record button that the barrels and the overall condition of the barrels are are really the single most important component of a shotgun. Um, in looking over a set of used shotgun barrels. What are some of the things to be aware of with regards to the condition of those barrels? Well, I don't know if this this uh, may speak to condition or alteration, but have the barrels been cut down? Yep, definitely. definitely. And have the have the chokes been opened up? Um, I had uh, I stopped at the Cabela's in Owatonna, and you can tell me if this was this was wrong, Greg. <clears throat> um, in Owatonna, Minnesota, on the way back from up Horse and Hunt Club. And they had a, a Beretta BL4, 12 gauge with 28 inch barrels, a really nice gun, nice condition. It was, I think, $6.99. It was, it was cheap. And someone had decided to make it into a skeet gun. So it had two beads and it had the barrels were bored out to skeet and skeet. And I had that gun and was on my way to the gun counter with it to, to start filling out paperwork and thought about it again and went back and put it back because I didn't really have any use for it. Mm. It's time too light to be a target gun, too heavy to be a uh, quail gun. Yeah, yeah. And I think that one thing that a lot of people may not realize is that when you cut down the barrels, it's not just simply a cosmetic change that, that has been made to that shotgun. Longer barrels are, are definitely preferred these days. Um, this isn't just a conversation about having a gun with shorter barrels um, as opposed to longer barrels. When a double barrel shotgun is manufactured, one of the most complex steps in building this shotgun is the process of laying and then regulating those barrels. Simply put, that's the process of making sure that they both have a very similar point of impact or point of aim. Double barrel shotgun tubes aren't perfectly straight or parallel. They're mounted to the gun um, a little bit wider at the breech end than they are at the muzzle end. So getting that taper right um, aligning that point of impact is referred to as regulating the barrels. If this process was originally completed by an expert on a set of 30-inch barrels, but then you know a local gunsmith has cut those barrels down uh, to 26 inches, you may have barrels that are wildly out of regulation. Um, I guess you could say it's it's really more of an accuracy issue rather than um, an issue of the the cosmetics uh, or the overall form factor. Um, of the gun. 
besides that, you also have to ask, you know, why was why was this alteration done to begin with? Did it cure a bulge in the barrels um, at the at the end? Uh, could there be more unseen damage to that gun? Mm-hmm. Um, so you really need to look into that. Yeah, I mean that's a very good point. How about how about rust? How about barrel rust? Uh, yeah, I mean rust is I so rust rusty barrels I would probably would just turn me off immediately, um, just because you don't know how far that rust goes, and it's I don't I don't deal with projects anymore. I don't look at guns. I, I don't want. I don't care. I don't do that stuff anymore. So it would have to be fantastic for me to. It'd have to be something that the rest of it was incredible or it was they were giving it away from you to even consider a gun with rusty barrels. I mean, even though, even though I mean, I've seen barrels that were kind of rusty and they cleaned up and they were fine. Mm-hmm. It's just I've it's just too easy for that to go bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I see rust as being in one of two categories. If it's inside of the barrels and, and the bores. Um, I kind of see that as an unforgivable oversight in properly caring for a shotgun. Um, if it's if it's light surface rust, on the other hand, on the outside of the barrels or on the um, the action, um, that worries me maybe a little bit less. I take note of it, but it, but it worries me less. Um, how about chamber length, Greg? What what's important to note when you're looking um, at chamber lengths, especially when we're again talking about vintage shotguns? So I like to see them. I, I like to see them original. I don't like to see uh, chambers that have been opened. Um, that being said, I mean I've bought guns that had you know like twelve gauges that were made as two and a halfs, and they are now two and three quarter. Um, but that was only first of all the guns were really rare and they were nice and it was, you know, it was a good deal. And then I had a, a gunsmith look it over to make sure it was done correctly because it's not the opening chambers sounds like so. There's lots of different ways you can do it and. There's lots of ways where you can damage the barrels by doing it and, or you can, I want to say you could compromise the barrels more than you should by doing it incorrectly because you're taking metal out and that's the demo. And so that's, that's the point of highest pressure when you fire the gun right there. Um, and so you want to make sure that uh, if metal is taken out, that it was taken out correctly and that the gun itself uh, before we, the metal was even taken out, that part of the barrel was sound because, uh, you know, the, you don't want the, the chambers blowing out on you. So, <laughs> right, right. Um, and it's not worth, that's just, that's something that I, I don't think, uh, you know, it's it, it, that's a tough thing to just take a risk on. I've, you know, like barrel wall thicknesses, when you get way down, when you get thin walls, like way down the barrels by the chokes, that's not much, that's not a super concern for me, depending on how thin they are, but when you when you open up the chambers and it's you know there's file marks in there or it just looks poorly done um that would be something i would avoid mm. it's just too too dangerous right but i think again that's something most people that's really hard to spot and really hard to know i mean i i wouldn't i don't trust myself to i mean i can kind of look in there but i i don't trust myself to have enough knowledge about vintage guns to be able to spot a poorly lengthened chamber so i would have to have somebody look at something mm-hmm. so Here's one for you with regards to barrels. How about aftermarket alterations or changes? Um, sometimes things just kind of come in and out of fashion. Um, what is coming to mind is like aftermarket ported barrels or or maybe the installation of odd name brand choke tubes. Um, there are definitely companies that do this sort of work, um, choke, tubes, choke tubes especially like Briley, who do phenomenal work um, and shouldn't cause any concern. But I know in, in years past, you could take a fixed choke gun 
to your local gunsmith who uh, maybe could cut it with, say, like Remington threaded um, Remington threads to accept rem chokes. Um, so that brings up the question about both the quality of the choke tubes and, you know, honestly, the quality of the install. So, so what are your thoughts on things like barrel porting and other aftermarket um, additions like maybe choke tubes? I don't mind barrel porting. I've had guns ported. I'm not sure it's a it's a huge benefit, uh, and you do have to clean the ports. So I guess you know all things being equal, I might buy an unported gun if I could. But it doesn't bother me a whole lot. Uh, it does, and there are a lot of different a lot of different people porting barrels and a lot of different shapes of holes and all that things. But um, you know, some people like it, some people don't. I'm not. I don't worry about it one way or the other. Uh, I think you're right that a gun that has been threaded for choke tubes, possibly by someone who wasn't very good at it, is is certainly something to look at, mm-hmm. be aware of. If 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 a gun has been threaded for some some kind of choke tube that it's not supposed to have, yeah, that that, that would be a that would be a red flag. Yeah. I think generally speaking, um, alterations of any type are something that you need to be paying attention to. You have to remember that this gun was designed a certain way to perform its best um, as it left the manufacturer and and to perform um, um, safely as it left the manufacturer. Changes to that design, they may or may may not improve its performance. I've used the term um, in vogue a few times before on the podcast because some of these sorts of changes and modifications do just kind of seem to follow what is currently kind of cool or trendy rather than what actually improves the performance of the shotgun. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm particularly, again, talking about barrel porting. I know that there are some clubs um, and even duck hunting guides that won't let you use a, um, a shotgun with ported barrels these days just because they're so much um, kind of louder and, and even more obnoxious in in, in more confined spaces. That's just something to keep in mind. Um, so again, just kind of be mindful of trends. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's talking about sporting guns, especially they used to be 28 inches was a standard sporting clays gun barrel. And, you know, 26 was a standard skeet gun. And, uh, you know, sometimes I've, I've been guilty of this. Uh, you buy one of these, a gun that's, you know, out of fashion that way. It's the barrels are too short. And you think, well, I don't care because I'm never going to sell this gun. Which, of course, a couple of years <laughs> later, I'm trying to sell this gun and nobody wants a gun with 28-inch barrels, you know, sporting guns. So, uh, you know, just in general, unless you don't care, uh, be aware of the oddball guns, unless you really, really like them and really, really don't care if you lose money or never plan to sell them. Um, it's... I don't know how many times I've said, well, I don't care. I'll, I'll never sell this gun. <clears throat> and so that's a great, that's a really good point. Cause I've bought odd, oddball stuff. Um, like, so I think, uh, Ryan, I think you mentioned Manu France as an ideal. I, so I've, I've, yeah. I've owned a couple ideals and I've also owned, uh, um, what are the other French uh, Darn. darns? Yeah. I've owned, yeah. I've owned a couple darns. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So those things, again, those that, and that kind of falls in that oddball world. And, uh, while they're fun to, you know, they're fun to find out about it, I run, I've run into the very problem that Phil's talking about that trying to sell them afterwards. Yeah. At, at a certain point in your, in your gun 
buying, you have to decide that you're just glad some of those guns are out there. Yeah. <laughs> and they may not really have a place at your house. I don't need to own them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let other people yeah. own them. Exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, let's let other people go down that go down that hole and then come climbing back out and go, what happened? Once they realize, uh, yeah, I've owned those. They're kind of, they're interesting, but I don't own them any longer. But yeah, I've, I've definitely, uh, and I have a thing now. I want to get, a, I want to get, a, um, I want to get an old side by side with twenty-five inch barrels. Um, yeah, but, old Churchill twenty-five. Yeah, something like that. I, I just want something with twenty-five inch barrels because they're cheap now. And I'm gonna drive a huge. I mean, and I know nobody, you know, nobody wants twelve gauges with twenty-five inch barrels. Um, so yeah, I want to get a great deal on one. Um, and they're and a lot of them were beautifully made back when they were built, and they handled really well. I mean, you know, they, they made them correctly. It's not like there's anything wrong with them. They're just out of fashion. But I know that if I want to, it's not it's not something I can flip. I don't care how cheap, you know, I'll get it. The only person I'll sell it to is another person like me who's looking to get an incredible deal. You know, that's like, uh, it's kind of the problem with being a bottom feeder. <laughs> is, uh, you know. I, I'm, I think I'm right there too. I honestly think though that the, the, those shorter barrel shotguns are going to see a little bit of renewed interest um, in the future. I think, you know, we, we all three definitely agree that for certain guns, smaller gauge guns, um, where maybe you're past shooting or shooting a bit more at distance, a longer barreled option is 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 a superior choice. But you don't need, definitely don't want a 30 inch barreled shotgun, um, say in the grouse woods. Um, yeah. So yeah, I've been I've been sort of on a soft hunt for a short barreled 12 gauge side by side too. Oh yeah, yeah, and you can buy them up for like if you watch the the auctions in the UK, it's amazing how cheap that stuff is nowadays. Yeah. Yep. So. So, so how about the stock? Um, we've gone, gone over the gun overall. Um, we've really focused on the condition of the barrels. What about the wood? Um, where are you both on stock dimensions? Um, I, am, I am lucky that I am the average man that guns are stocked for. <clears throat> so I can, I can shoot a lot of them um, pretty well but there's there are some that i can't yeah. um and, and again as long as they weren't altered right as long yeah. as they weren't altered yeah. that length of pull dimension is is one that is often and, and pretty easily altered and you definitely mm -hmm. need to be aware of that yeah if, if guns have been cut down severely so that any any kind of corrections would look like you know there'd be a pad and a bunch of spacers that will just look horrible i probably don't want it yeah and i don't and so i used to not pay a ton of attention to fit um but you, as you know like with american guns it's pretty easy if you get into you know really old parkers and lefevers and all that kind of stuff to find guns with three inches of drop um and i just don't i'm now i just know that uh you know i i don't want to go take the effort to sh learn how to shoot them and deal with them and stuff like that so uh i don't bother with that stuff anymore i definitely want the other biggest thing for me is length of pull and i would like I want I want a gun that I can get to easily get to 15 inch length of pull, um, with maybe just like three quarters of inch of pad at the most. Um, so if a gun has already has a pad on it and it's like 14 and a quarter, 14 and a half, yeah, it's I not going to work. Forget it. Yeah, yeah, I'm not restocking stuff. Restocking's nothing, something to do. Yep. So Greg, I get a lot of people who reach out to me who are new into the double barrel shotgun universe 
And they're probably currently shooting like a semi-automatic, but they want to get into their first double barrel shotgun. And often they've got it in their head that they want a cool vintage American side-by-side. They're looking for advice on what to look for. Um, They hear that these guns usually have different stock dimensions than, than what we're used to now. Um, And if that's what they're set on, I don't try to dissuade them but I do try to make sure first that they understand that they're going to need to be very deliberate in adapting their shooting style to shoot that new gun. Um, they need to plan to shoot it a lot. Well, so that is that is excellent advice. Absolutely. But what I did is I just went out and bought a Sterling Worth. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's what most people do. So I actually, I think it would be a great recommendation to just, just go out and buy our Sterling Worth. And, uh, uh, and then, and then, and, then, and what and that'll that'll cure them of their wanting no, a vintage. No, then you can start learning about all these things. Oh, okay. <laughs> so and you'll learn lessons you'll never forget. <laughs> so uh I know of course I'm being flipped, but I mean I'm saying that like I I believe there I believe you should be very thorough. I think you need to understand how guns fit and understand how they fit you and if you want to be able to hit stuff and you're going to want a gun and I I think that but I know personally I'm not someone who takes advice very well. And I tend to have to stumble into things and make make mistakes and screw up. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think you need to I think you should I think you should uh, really consider things in great detail. And like you're saying, think of all that stuff. But yes, just dive in and buy a sterling. I did a I did a gun (laughs) fitting with Del Whitman from uh, from Traverse Traverse City last summer. And I we were talking about the value of gun fitting. He said the biggest value of a gun fitting is it saves you money because it yeah. keeps you from buying guns you can't shoot. Yeah, yeah. Once you know your once you know your measurements, you need, then you have, <clears throat> you know what range you can be looking at, and everything else just. I don't, think the one don't the, touch it. I was gonna say the one thing about gun fit is so if you go and get someone to fit you, what you're quickly gonna find is you probably there probably isn't an American gun out there that fits you. So that's some, and and I have actually found in my limited experience with those guns, it's not that hard to shoot them. You just, you have to keep your head up. Um, yeah, and I shoot that way too. That's how I like. I that's how I I always shot that way. I just hold my head up, and if I consistently, so I can take, I can sort of teach myself to shoot one of those. You know, like I can, um, I can go to the range and practice with it, and sort of get myself to understand what I need to do with it. Uh, but then if I go shoot something else, then I have to. I either you know that style doesn't apply. And I can't sort of just come up with another style. So I sort of, you know, you sort of build muscle memory. And um, so that's sort of the dilemma. I just know that. So like, for some reason, Lefevre's, uh, you know, so Lefevre Arms Company's guns, the Syracuse ones, always have short stocks with a lot of drop in them. And there's no way around it. It's, it, it's just, they, that's just pretty much how they made a lot of them. And uh so I can't. I, I I stay away from it now because I know I I just really can't. Well, if if you're careful, you can find later American doubles that do have more yes. modern yeah. dimensions. It's not they're not they they did make some. Yeah, yeah. I know you can and, find late Parkies. You can find Winchester twenty ones. Um, some of the late Foxes. Um, yes, uh, but it's hard, and you'll, you know. I think that's one reason why I became more interested. It's definitely one of the reasons why I became interested in the British stuff because the British guns have more uh, dimensions that you can shoot and 
there's a what you know and they were making you know you know all the way back into the guns that were from the 19th century they have they a lot of them tend to have higher stocks and a little longer stocks yeah so. yeah and that that's one of the follow-up questions that i'll ask people is this going to be your primary shotgun i think these guns are the best options for guys who might only have a shotgun or two and then and then plan to use this gun the most often um the learning curve to shoot these vintage guns um, accurately will be cut way down if that is your your go-to shotgun, as opposed to somebody maybe like me who might be flipping back and forth and back and forth between several, you know, modern field guns, then your, your sporting clays gun uh, to shoot all summer with, um, might be an over and under, and then you plan to pull out your, your vintage, you know, 16-gauge Parker uh, for one or two days um, up in the grouse woods, I think you're really, really going to struggle. Right, um, right, right. How about cast? Do either of you let a stock's cast be a determining factor in whether to buy it or not? Uh, I'm the wrong person to ask. Um, again, you know, I, I did my fitting this this summer, and uh, I'm a left-handed shooter, and I almost wound up with right-handed cast just because I am so used to shooting right-handed guns. And that just seemed too weird to the fitter, so we called it neutral. Uh, well, so I, you know, I don't, I'm kind of, I don't notice it. Uh, I don't pay that much attention to it unless it's excessive. You know, like more than, maybe more than like three eighths of an inch. Then you're starting to get like a half inch, a half inch of cast is you're starting to get a lot. Um, I can't say that I've ever noticed it helping me at all. Um, but I, I'm going to guess that neither of you have altered the cast on e any of your shotguns. No, that's something I like. So bending a stock is something that I, I won't do. I won't bend stocks. Yeah. Yeah. So. That, that's something I haven't been brave enough, um, to, uh, to try that, um, yet either. I guess it depends on what you, if you, a little cast isn't that bad to put it, but I know people who try to bend stocks up yeah. to get the drop out of them. Yeah, that that's hard. And, that's a little more side, a, side to side is easier than up and down by a lot. Yeah, that's just the wood doesn't want to do that. I have seen some American guns that have had splices, uh, you know, that had the stock spliced to raise them up and and done in such a way that they actually look pretty good. But uh, that would probably be, you know, it. That's the end of your original condition when you do that. But you do have a gun you can shoot. Yeah, and you're dealing with someone a pretty specialized thing to do. Yeah, well, just uh, the way I've seen it done is, is you slice the stock diagonally, kind of from the, the comb to the the toe, and then put another piece of wood in. Some people, some of the ones I've seen have been done with lighter wood, so it's obviously a spacer, and uh, some have been done to match, mm. and it looks okay, but it makes it into a gun you can shoot. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, interesting. Well, guys, have we left anything off of this uh, this short list of what to look for when you're buying a used shotgun? I think one so one thing I consider over almost everything else nowadays is can I get ammunition for it? Um, so I've had a lot of guns with short chambers, two and a half inch chambers, you know, sixteens, twenties, twelves, and I don't know where you're going to get that ammo in two years or three years. Um, I'm worried that you're not going to be able to like, especially like, where am I going to get two and a half inch 16 gauge in two years? I just don't know if I'm going to be able to get it. And so 
now when I look at guns, the first thing I ask my, yeah, that, you know, I want to see two and two and three quarter inch chambers. Um, just so that I know that I can, I'll, I'll most likely always be able to find, you know, um, uh, low velocity, 12 gauge, two and three quarter inch loads and low velocity, two and three quarter inch, 20 gauge loads, you know? So, um, and unfortunately like 16s, uh, I kind of, I, I still love 16 gauges, but I, I worry again that I, if RST goes out of business, I don't know where you're going to find ammo. Mm-hmm. You so. just have to buy up all their hauls and load your own. <laughs> that's right. Or I just, you know, I buy, I like every time, every time it comes available, I buy some. Um, so. Now yeah, the, the solution to that is, is to just start reloading, um, which. Oh yeah. I, well, I, I, I quit true. right at exactly the wrong time, right before the pandemic. Um, but you know, and then you can make whatever you want. I, and I do think, and Greg and I talk about this a lot, but. But gauge, uh, gauge is always something to think about, and you can get a, a really a much better deal in a twelve gauge than you can in anything else. Absolutely. And if you're looking at a gun and it's a twelve gauge, it may it may last for a little while. If it's a small bore, it's you probably better make up your mind in a hurry because those go. Yep. Those guns sell fast. Yep. Our our last episode was on the twenty eight gauge. Um, the 28 gauge is, is definitely sort of the darling um, right now. It's, I, I know. We, we talked about that before uh, three-inch 28 <laughs> gauges were a thing, and I will confess I killed a double in Big Canada Geese with a 28 this last fall. It's kind of fun. Now, uh, now, what was the recoil like on a three-inch 28 gauge? That was a, that was a, it was, semi, yeah, it was a semi-auto, right? Yeah, yeah Super Black Eagle 3 um, with an ounce of heavy shot fours, which is a lot. Um, I didn't, I, I didn't notice. Uh, I was pretty excited at the time. Now that said, I, I'm still a 12 gauge shooter. I think that those guns are too light for me to shoot very well, but it was yeah. fun. It was, well, and you were shooting a 16 gauge, a 20 gauge, 16 gauge load out of a 28 gauge. It's yes. not a 28 gauge anymore. Yeah, no, it, that's the, uh, uh, it's true that the gauges, uh, those distinctions are all losing all, right, right. all meaning anymore. Stuff Everything overlaps. Yep. Yep. <laughs> well, I think the main takeaway for the used shotgun buyer is that if the 28 gauge is what everybody wants right now, be okay looking at 20 gauge shotguns. You're definitely going to find uh, more options, and I, and I promise they're going to be at better prices. And if you're okay with a 12, you're going to find even more options, and they're going to be even better buys. Um, I think we need to wrap this episode up with with one final point to say that 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 absolutely none of this is a replacement for getting the gun looked at by a professional. All of these tips should definitely help you narrow down the list of options from from many to a few or even down to just one, but getting the opinion of an expert is absolutely invaluable. Do each of you have a typical practice um, that you use for that? You know, so as I, I have stuff. Oh, so I, I say, I, as I said, I, I I tend to buy from stores where the guns get inspected when they come in, so that's already done for me. Um, but so I can let Greg talk about the rest of it. So I was going to say, so I have the guns sent to my gunsmith, and I have him look at it before I even see a thing. And if it's if he says it's no good, I send it back, and. Not everyone has a, you know, so I, I actually advise people 
if like so, so not every, there aren't a lot of so if, when you get into the good british stuff there aren't a lot of gunsmiths in the country who can look at the stuff and really give you a, a good opinion of it i actually tell people to find one that's even if they're a day's drive away i i, I would ship the gun to them just to get their opinion of it and then if they think it's all good close the deal and then have them ship it to you just because there's so much to know and it's so easy to make a mistake that can that can you know be expensive that it's worth doing that their opinion is that valuable yep um and and i think that you're also i think you're also giving yourself a relatively affordable education if if that expert that you send it to gives you a thumbs up and he or she isn't going to be able to tell you that this particular shotgun is a good example and a good buy for these reasons. Well, well now you know. Or maybe, hey, this, this gun's got some red flags or some issues, and, and here they are. That's going to make you that much more of an educated and a savvy buyer on the next gun um, that you might look at. Um, I would absolutely say that I am nowhere near perfect about always having used shotguns looked over before I buy them. No, I'm not. Um, yeah. I'm probably a lot yeah. more like Phil in that, that most of the time I'm buying from shops, even though they're online, um, that, that I know they know what they're talking about and their reputation is more important to them um, than, you know, selling this one individual gun um, to me. So they're going to be honest and they're going to represent it accurately. Guys, that that pretty much wraps up um, my notes. Um, did we did we leave anything off? No, no, not, nothing else. But some great talking with you. Think. Okay. Well, I, I always enjoy hearing from both of you guys. You guys both have tons of experience and um, and fantastic advice. So thank you. Um, how about you tell listeners where they can find um, find you and follow more about what you're up to these days? Sure. I mean, so everyone can find me. Uh, I'm Greg Dogs and Doubles uh, so I'm on Instagram, Dogs and Doubles, Facebook, Dogs and Doubles, and then also my blog is dogsanddoubles.com. And I just post a lot about guns. I'm trying to post more about the dog part stuff too. It's been uh, it's been more doubles.com for a long time, but dogsanddoubles.com. Yep. And so. Greg, my favorite is your um, your good guns of the week. Um, I would definitely encourage everyone to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I do it every Sunday. I try to do it every Sunday. I try to post five guns that I've seen out there that are that are new to the market and that are interesting uh, and look like decent guns to me. So, Phil, do you have any new uh, new projects you're working on? I do. I'm, I am very excited that uh, we have new owners at Field and & Stream. And one of the things they're doing is bringing back the magazine. Oh, nice. wow. That's awesome. Oh, nice. So we will be back in print again. I think at first it will just be twice a year. But we're working on a spring issue now. and um, And with luck, there will be more than twice a year magazines uh, and then we're redoing the website and everything else too but but being back in print is the big thing sure that's what we're excited that's about. awesome that is great that is fantastic okay well with that i think we can call this one finished um guys thanks again very for good. your time great. tonight appreciate thank it thank you thank you very much you bet been a lot of fun Talk to you soon well hopefully this has given you some good information as you've heard me mention i really enjoy when listeners reach out to me with questions about a shotgun they might be considering buying or just shotgun talk in general. So if you have a question, don't hesitate to email or message me on our social sites. We also want to thank our Patreon members who have chosen to send a few dollars our way to support the podcast. Our Patreon members are automatically entered to win in a quarterly gear giveaway, currently an awesome Upland strap vest from Tom Beckby. 
More information can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash a break in the action. We have more shotgun shooting and sporting lifestyle content coming soon. So until next time, we hope you have enjoyed this episode of a break in the action. Want to hear your voice on a future episode? Leave a message, ask a question, or suggest a topic on our listener line at 317-662-4520. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and visit us at abreakintheaction.com.